This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be challenging, especially because we're always growing and changing. Sometimes we aren't quite sure what we want or why we react the way we do until we talk things through. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and can help you to really understand yourself. Whilst it might be nerve-wracking or may feel too scary to talk to someone, just remember that pain, unfortunately, is the agent of change. So it's important we continue to grow and stop building walls around our emotions. BetterHelp connects you with a licensed therapist who can take you on that journey of self-discovery wherever you are. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Discover your potential with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash therapyworks today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Zoe Blasky, I am so thrilled that you have joined me. You are a mother of two, founder of Motherkind, and host of the incredibly successful Motherkind podcast that's had over 3 million downloads. And so given that on the face of it, that looks so successful and tickety-boo, what is a challenge you are facing or have faced? Well, I think it has to be motherhood. I mean, that's why I started the platform, really, because I found it so challenging not just the parenting aspect of it which of course is challenging but everything around it I found the 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 tension between balancing my needs and their needs the the emotional intensity the physical intensity just everything changed in my world and yeah I, I find it an ongoing challenge completely selfishly that's why I I talk about it all day every day to help myself first I mean I think what's really interesting is that what we most need is often what in the end is successful. So because there's an authenticity and a kind of hunger for what you need and that has been transmitted to your guests, to your thinking, to your understanding and created something that other people can feel that in them. Yeah, it's true. And people say, how have you continued? You know, because I've, I've had two young girls, like, in the in the process of building this. Plan. So Jessie's now seven. She was two when I started. And Rose is three. And I've had, you know, miscarriages and house meetings. have all sorts going on. Yeah, it's true. And people say, how have you continued? You know, because I've, I've had two young girls, like, in the in the process of building this plan. How old are the girls? So Jessie's now seven. She was two when I started and Rose is three. And I've had, you know, miscarriages and house meetings. have all sorts going on in the period. And people say, like, how have you managed to keep two episodes a week for five years? And it's it's because, like, just like you said, Julia, it's because I just lean into what I'm struggling with. I find someone incredible like you or, you know, some amazing people. And then I am really vulnerable. I just essentially ask for help, knowing that that's going to help. That the most personal is the most universal. And I wondered if you could give us a bit of your backstory about what were the things that led motherhood to be so challenging? Why was this particularly challenging for you? Yeah, I think I think the biggest one 
was that I came from a family where there was a lot of love and all our physical needs were met, all our, you know, we went to good schools and we never struggled to put food on the table, but there wasn't the emotional support. And that's through no fault of my parents. They, they just didn't get it from their parents. It was a completely different time, wasn't it? You and I have talked about this a lot. Like it was a completely different time. And my parents had their own things, you know, through their lineage. And it meant that I never had a strong sense of self. I never did. I always felt like I didn't know what to do with my feelings. I just, I, I, I was never taught and I had big feelings. Like I now know I'm, I'm highly empathic. I feel things a lot. I didn't know any of that then. And so I started to just try and figure out ways to handle that. And the, the first thing mm. that I did was achievement. So I was like complete achiever. My mum used to have to come when I was young, like 12, 13 and, and say, time to put your books down. Because I was just, I didn't know it then, but now looking back, I was just trying to A, avoid my feelings. And overworking mm. is a really good way to do that. It's a really socially acceptable way to do that. And yeah, I was trying to get that sense of self, that sense of validation and achievement. And, and that, that sort of morphed through the years. You know, first it started at achievement and, and then into workaholism. When I first got into the world of work, I would overshop, I would overdrink. So I had this sort of turmoil and I, I really didn't know, I really didn't know what to, what to do with it. But it, it all boiled down to just now having done 20 years of therapy, <laughs> not being able to sit with these feelings, just didn't know. And I, I had, I've had to learn to do that. What's coming up for me in this, and this may not fit for you, is that beneath the difficulty in managing big feelings and that awful sort of feeling that you feel too much or don't make it, you know, you're, you're making a fuss. And also beneath that sense of, I didn't know, I didn't have a sense of self, is that core first need of needing to be seen, of needing to be known internally, and that that you exist. I see you and I see all that's going on in you and all that's going on in you is valid and I want to know and I want to receive it. Yeah, but this is where it gets so fascinating because, you know, and I've studied this and I've had incredible people speak to this, including you, Julia, on the, on the podcast, is that what I noticed is when I first became a mum, and children are essentially ball of emotion, right? They're just feelings, <laughs> you know, in some flesh. They just scream and cry. And, and what I noticed is I would find it really hard, still do, to, to do that seeing part, that validation part, to let them have a tantrum, to let them be grumpy. And now my seven-year-old, you know, running off, slamming doors, to allow all of that because it was so not... It was never sort of, you know, I don't think my parents ever thought we're not going to allow that. It was just that it wasn't, that wasn't the language in our, the language in our home was that this is, this is the way to, this is the way to be. And so I learned, you know, to hide those parts of me. And what is so incredible is that I can see my tendency to do that to my own children. And so the cycle would go on. And so this is why I say like motherhood has really challenged me because of all the practicalities and all of that, but mainly the emotional side of it. So I feel like I'm trying with no blueprint to hold all of my feelings and then do that work, just as you said, of being able to really see my seven-year-old and my three-year-old. And that sounds easy, but it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard, you know, when they're crying and crying or, or, or screaming or, you know, all the feelings that you know, typically we're told are bad, like anger, you know, really being able to just validate that is hard emotional labor for me. And I'm also really proud that I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I really want my children to be able to have that sense of being seen of validation, all feelings are welcome. I really think it's like the baseline for a beautiful life. 
way more than anything else, way more than academics. Because I'm like a case study. I got A's and firsts and I had a massive breakdown because I couldn't manage my internal life. So I, in our family and, and, and my husband Guy and I, we really do try very imperfectly to put the internal first. That sounds so moving and so beautiful and such hard emotional labour. It's like the coal mine of emotional labour being a mum. For those who haven't got to where you've got to, and they're at sort of the first stop where they feel overwhelmed by themselves, they don't feel known, they don't know themselves. And maybe they're on the precipice of a breakdown. Can you kind of let us know what that experience was like and how you manage that? I'd love to say that it was one moment but it's really been more of a drip, drip, drip. And when I first started, I was really lucky. I found myself in a 12-step support group for families where there's been dysfunction or addiction. It's called Al-Anon. And I was really, really lucky to find myself in that because being able to express my feelings not just with a therapist, but with, with, with others was incredibly healing, incredibly healing for me. It was unreal. And I was so lucky, Julia, because I was 23. You were young. So I was young because I think there's so much shame when you haven't had that experience of saying the awful thing that you might be feeling and having someone smile and go, yeah, me too. I felt that when you haven't had that, the result is shame when it was in me. So I felt so much shame about some of the things that I felt. I felt so much shame about how much I hated myself. I felt so much shame about how much I was struggling with life with all my privilege. You know, I'd never been on the breadline. I'd gone to university. I was like, how am I? I'm so privileged. How am I struggling? I felt so much shame about that. I felt so much just shame. I think a lot of people... I mean, we kind of know the difference between the external world and our internal world, that the external world can look so Marie Kondo tidy with your first and your privilege. And of course, that is an advantage for people that don't have that and that needs to be kind of recognised. And at the same time, it is possible to have an absolute place of scarcity and toxicity and shame internally whilst everything looks so good from the outside and the the differential between the two is kind of crazy making yeah that was definitely my experience and so I think you know learning that whatever I feel is okay that that was it sounds so simple but that was really really transformative for me learning to put words to my feelings like I studied the feelings wheel because I didn't know any you know I didn't understand about my emotional Mm. landscapes it was like going back to school like I learned emotional health I learned about boundaries I learned about advocating for myself I learned about saying no when things don't feel right I learned where my tendency to stuff my own needs had come from so essentially it was like going back to a really really incredible useful school and I did that through the the support groups I did that through private therapy I was really lucky that I could I could afford that I did that through a lot of reading I did that through trying on a ton of different practices like I basically tried everything to see to see what worked for me and yeah, it's, it's, it's daily for me. It is daily. Like I am wired in my core for fear, for catastrophic thinking and to want to essentially abandon myself. That is my default. And so I'll do tiny things every day to, to counter that. It does build. It absolutely builds. And now I have a really kind voice that I can access but that's taken you know years I think sometimes I get frustrated I know you do too particularly this sort of world that we live in with social that it's it's quick fixes and quick tips to heal your you know your inner critic it's that's it's been it's been a drip 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 effect for me and what was so incredible about motherhood is that it, it in a way accelerated 
Um, and it really did show me all the places where I was still not being who I wanted to be in the world, feeling how I wanted to feel, loving myself in the way that I wanted to, to love myself. It showed me all of that. And I was completely unprepared for it. I mean, there's so many pings going off in my head. On the one hand, there's a very parallel process for me. So I first discovered the world of therapy through Al-Anon. And I went when I was, I think it was 22 or 23, and then therapy and then became a therapist. So there's something very, and it came from a family of privilege. So um, there is a very parallel process, which so I find it very touching hearing you because it also touches my my story too. Which, if you were my client, I wouldn't tell you. I would just let myself know. But since we're on the pod, I can tell you. I felt very moved hearing you say that your default mode is to go to fear, which, of course, then is abandoning yourself because when you're in a heightened state, you're not connected, you're disconnected from yourself. So you lose yourself. So you have this double whammy of, (gasps) but also you feel so alone and you can't connect with yourself, receive or give love until you feel safe again. Because when you're in your heightened state, you're not there for love. You're there to to deal with perceived threat. I think what's so valuable about what you're saying for people listening is that we don't get over stuff. We learn how to shift and change our perspective and develop something new, which is your kind voice, which sounds so powerful. I find very touching hearing that. But it's a very conscious thing. That isn't your default. And you do go back to your default. Yeah, yeah, of course. And I think when I hear people speak of that, I find it incredibly validating, which is why I always make sure that I that I talk about that, that it's not that, that fear or that raging bully that I used to live with in my head is is gone. That's not been my experience. Maybe it will be in a decade. I don't know. That's that's not my experience so far. My experience is just that I've built up another side. It's almost like I think of it as like a scales. I've built up something on the scale and I have some tools and I can catch it. And just like you said, you know, when I go into that fear, I actually dissociate. So I I actually feel like I'm not there and it's 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 been it, I'm it's much better than it used to be but I now know t- to ground myself and you know a lot of this is, has has been through motherhood that I've I've learned that because I so need to be present with my girls like when they're having a meltdown they need me to be present they can't look up and see a mother who's physically there emotionally gone what do you do to ground yourself Simple stuff, really simple, like just coming back to my senses. My feet are on the floor. I might um, squeeze my arm. Just really, really simple, nothing uh, nothing particularly fancy. Just it can't be hard because in that moment it has to be something really quick and really simple that I can that I can grab. And I'll just or I'll just say to myself, you're safe, you're okay. Just come back to this moment. If I'm outside, I look at the sky. Um, I will see if I can smell something. I'll use my senses to just bring myself bring myself back to your back. body yeah it's just that old safety mechanism that's like something doesn't feel safe particularly if the girls are having a scrap or if they're having <laughs> like a physical scrap like all kids do or if one of them is having a huge meltdown my my seven-year-old has very big meltdowns um it's just it's that mechanism in me that says this isn't safe because I never learned how to handle that sort of emotion because I never really saw it I never so it's that's all it is I I have so much compassion for why I do it and it makes complete sense why I do it you know why my my body and my brain does that so it's just it's just training myself I almost feel like it's like the gym I, I just train myself you're safe you're safe you can come back to the moment and it is incredible it does work because now I'm able to stay 90% of the time quite grounded and present even in the face of really big seven-year-old meltdowns over the wrong cereal bowl or whatever I might be facing so yeah but it's it's you know and also it gives me a lot of compassion for my for my parents and my caregivers because you know I don't know this but I wonder if that was their experience too which is why it might feel really unsafe for me to be around those big feelings if they weren't able to sit with them. I mean, I really applaud you for having done so much work and committed with such determination in a way that to keep going, because it's quite easy to begin doing these things, but to keep going and keep evolving, keep learning and growing is really 
hard because it's so um, easy to kind of go back to one's default position. And I do do that. I do. And I do go back. Of course I go back. But I need the moments. I really need the moments where I abandon myself or I people please or I push down a feeling because it reminds me of the impact of that. So I, I, I genuinely need those moments where I completely forget everything that I know because it reminds me, oh, God, I feel terrible. I feel really burnt out. I feel completely overwhelmed. I've just shouted at the kids, what's going on? And I'll grab my journal and, or, you know, I'll speak to someone or whatever. I'll use a tool I've got and I'll figure it out. Oh, that's why. And so, so in a way, I feel not grateful, but those moments where I do go back, uh, I can use those as, as fuel, really, like you said, to, to then remind myself why I why I have to keep on this track because life just doesn't feel very good when I don't it really doesn't no uh, uh, and what it brings up for me is or well, two things and maybe I'll just ask one first and then the other because that might be a good idea <laughs> is your family history your transgenerational patterns because you were mentioning that your parents kind of don't kind of fully recognize where they've come from but of course they weren't given any of the the blueprint of how to be either and so I think one of the things that can really help ourselves individually and having compassion for ourselves but also our parents and our grandparents is recognizing the story the narrative in our family the transgenerational story do you have a a short enough version of a transgenerational story that you can well, I'm not going to share specifics. Just because no, it's private, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's private. It's not my story to share. But I'll share some of the things that in, in that have really helped me. And when I was, I was quite young. I was probably 25, 26, and someone said to me, "Why don't you do a genogram?" But oh, not nice. in not in terms of you know who married who, but do it in terms of what you know about trauma and pain. And I went back as far as I could, and it was. It was actually mind-blowing. It shows you patterns. And patterns. Yeah, it was actually one of the best things that I've ever done in terms of unlocking compassion for my family and my family story. Because I was, honestly, I finished that and I sobbed because I thought my parents are incredible. They are incredible. That's so touching. I saw what they had come from and and what was going on in in the history and I saw how much they loved us you know they kept showing up for us and they provided us so much and I actually wrote my mum a letter when I first became a mother so I would have been a mother about six months and I wrote my mum a 30 page thank you letter that's beautiful. How amazing. Well, it was, a, it was, I started from young. So I said, I'll get emotional. I said, um, you know, thank you for carrying me. Thank you for birthing me. Thank you for nursing me. Thank you for, I, I, and I did it all through the years. It was 30 pages. <laughs> I know. I know because I just, I just, thing. Well, I just felt this rush of compassion and love and gratitude when I realized what a sacrifice it is. And I realized how hard I found it. And I'd already done, you know, what, 10 years in Al-Anon, 10 years therapy. And so I thought, my God, my mom didn't have any of that. And she was present, you know, neither of them left. They were there. They were... Yeah, it was amazing, actually. And I felt like I had to do that. But I only got to that place by understanding the generational patterns, because I saw everything through the eyes of compassion, really, and understanding. Not to say that I didn't also understand the impact of some of that on me. And I definitely processed some anger around that. Of course, it wasn't I spiritually bypassed myself and went straight (laughs) to love and compassion, but I was able to get there, which culminated in this this letter. That's so powerful. Actually, I get clients to do that genogram um, and I'll do a link to it it in the show notes. There's a book. And, And so when you see the patterns of, say, suicide or addiction or divorce or illness it completely 
gives a context and a breadth to your story that you're part of something that's bigger than them and they've got they're part of something that's bigger than them and it does open your compassion doesn't it because it really does it really does open compassion and I think as a parent it opens some really big questions which you can try and get answered from your parents while they're still alive is that what you mean I mean more as in yes and what role do I want to play in this pattern? Nice. How do I change my story? How do I change this story? What do I want my children, you know, when they do a genogram and they write my name, what are they going to write? You know, which is scary and it's big, but for me it feels really important, arguably nothing more important for me. No. That that's the essence of um, of mothering is that they can be fully themselves knowing that you love them with all of who they are and what they are internally and that being loved is is being known and seen going back to that beginning thing we talked about being seen that you exist i see you i also want to applaud you for writing letters because i think letters have a real place in parenting with children and in families and in our relationships that we lose through texts and emails and that that seeing someone's handwriting on a page that you can keep in a drawer, that you can go back and read again, but also you can take real care in writing the letter. And that letter to your mum sounds so beautiful. I mean, what was her response to it? It was a special moment. Mm. Yeah, I think letter writing has always been a part. You know, I used to write to my grandmother and actually she died in COVID. Oh, gosh. And, and sorry. I've, I've got all the letters back and it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. And I've written a lot of letters that I have not sent, which I think is a really, really good practice as well. I've written a lot of letters that I haven't sent because writing that person's name and and processing your thoughts and feelings as if you are going to send it and then not sending it has been it's it, it, it's a real it's been a shortcut to me actually in tra- transforming a lot of a lot of relationships and i also write letters to my girls that's exactly yeah which they will get when they're 18 so before any big transition or around any big transition so moving house starting school whatever it might be i write them a letter and seal it yeah and then they, they go in a box that they'll get when they're 18 which that's i think so special that's wonderful gosh I have, uh, there's so many things I want to say, but the, the letters that you don't send, I guess, are a way of being relational without kind of blowing up the relationship so you get your feelings down. And then that allows you to process, like journaling kind of is the equivalent exactly. of therapy. Exactly. But you can see, you can track your own history with yourself with your unsent letters. And I think there's something about writing where it feels like a wisdom or a a, a compassion or a heart that I wouldn't be able to access in many other ways comes through. And it comes through when I'm journaling and it comes through when I, if I do that letter writing practice, there's a perspective that I find hard to access in other ways that comes through when I write. And that's why I'm always talking about a five minute journaling practice for, for parents and, you know, mothers who I, who I tend to work with, because I think that's, it's such a way where you can quite quickly access perspective and insight and you can self-talk, you can, you can pep talk yourself through journaling. And I feel like it's, it's free, it's quick, it's accessible. I'm really into it because it's probably been one of the most transformational tools that I've I've found, it's being able to put pen to paper. And I think where it calls on your deeper wisdom, neurobiologically, the slowing down, which is different when you're writing to when you're tapping on a phone, uh, keys into your hippocampus, which is your kind of memory that has the wisdom 
in it because it can recall stored memories, stored knowledge. It doesn't go into the kind of hypervigilant amygdala. So that when you slow down, it gives all of your being the opportunity, your mind and your body to connect and know what you didn't know, but what you really did know. Um, and I think both for journaling in relation to oneself, but I love the idea of unsent letters being stored. I haven't had that, but also these letters and points of transition to your daughter. So I write letters to my children on their big birthdays. Um, and I was actually thinking about Emily's going to be 40 in July and I was already thinking about what I'm going to say to her in, in her letter, which she will now hear because she's going to listen to this part. Oh. But anyway. <laughs> That's really um, beautiful. Have you always done that? The thing is, I should be more consistent. So I wrote letters to some of my grandchildren when they were born. And I have written to letters to my children at different times in their life, but not like every birthday. I think I've written to them all on their 30th birthday. Um, I am definitely going to write to them all on their 40th birthday because I've sort of made the decision now. But I'd like to have done it more. I love what you've done. Yeah, but you you know, you, you you have to trust, don't you, that if you were meant to have written more, you would have written more. Yes, I'm not beating myself up, but it it's a lovely it's a lovely thing. And what that makes me think about motherhood is what about dads? How much do you talk and think about dads? Well, it's interesting because when I started Motherkind and I started this work and I started the, the podcast, not much. Because it was all about matrescence and I learned this word about, you know, the, the physical, emotional, hormonal changes that happens to a mother. And it's a good word. I really, it's, yeah, it's an incredible word. I really got into understanding that and unpacking it. And as I did more and more work in this space, I very quickly figured out that how much support a mother has. So whether she's, you know, on her own co-parenting, whether she's with the, the partner of her, her child and whatever sex that person is actually male or female, um, or however they, however they identify, that is really, really, really important. So I started to understand about invisible labor and mental load and emotional load and how typically that would fall to the primary caregiver and how typically that is the, 90%. That is the mother. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm always looking at things through the lens of motherhood. That seems to be my passion and purpose that has just been gifted to me. Like I, I am really, really, really passionate and about that. And you're really that. clear, which is fantastic. Yeah. And so I'm not going to start a podcast about the father experience. I wouldn't be the right person to do that. I wish someone would, but I wouldn't be the right person to do that. But as I get deeper and deeper into this work, I am recognizing more the importance that when we talk about an empowered motherhood, when we talk about, you know, patriarchy and the impact of that on motherhood, of course, we have to have men and fathers as that conversation because it benefits us all. It's not that it's what's great for us isn't good. It's not, you know, one against the other. It's good for us all if we all feel um, empowered and educated and supported. We as mothers sometimes exclude fathers and that means our invisible labour, the mental load is bigger. We can be a kind of martyr as a mother, that it's all down to me and then hate the fathers and somehow finding a bridge of how you co-parent and how you share the load with diff your different skill sets. And I think a big part of our role as mothers to help fathers is validating the importance of fathers. So rather than moaning, fathers are useless, they, you know, I do all the washing, it's like really acknowledge and naming and supporting fathers to be the fathers they can be. And I think they, you know, I wrote in my books quite a lot about fathers learning to be fathers. And I, th I think them finding their way with it is um, complex, but I think they need our support as much as we need their support. 
Absolutely. It's, ju- it's just as complex as the transition to motherhood. You know, it was only a couple of generations ago when, when it was completely unheard of for a father to change a nappy. You know, there is so much changed in a really short space of time, if you think about it. I really, really think it's it's incredibly important. And there was there was a book that really changed and educated me on this called Fair Play by an American author called Eve Rodsky. And she talked about what tends to happen is that mothers hold all of that invisible labor, emotional labor, mental load, and then we delegate jobs out. So can you go and pick up you do the, the this. sports club yeah. at 5 p.m.? Mm. Yeah, here's the sports bag is all packed with everything that they, they need by the door. Can you go, you know? And she says that is not helpful. She so says it's, undermine, it's undermining for your partner because what you're essentially saying through that behavior you're, is you can't, you can't handle it. Handle I'm, I'm managing it's all patronizing. of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I don't trust exactly. you. Exactly. And then over time, you get that alert helplessness, or you, you can. So she talks about when we divide the load, and she did this seven-year study. She's an American lawyer who found this in her own partnership and couldn't believe what was happening to her, that she suddenly was just, her brain was just full of holding on to the, the millions of micro things the that kids. we have to know to yeah. run a household. Teachers, it's, yeah. Who has who has what cup? Whose friend's birthday's on that day? The teacher's birthday, the cu- I mean, it's just, it's endless. Any <laughs> parent listening to this will know what I'm talking yeah. about. So she spent seven years and she broke down all the tasks of running a household. And it is like running. It's like a business. It's a business. It? You think yeah, it's, it's totally absolutely. a business. Absolutely. And she talked about how you divide that up, but not only you divide it up based on skills and interest and exactly what you said, Julia, but you have to give that task completely to the other persons. Because she says, if you are still micromanaging it, then you haven't freed up any of your mental headspace. So she talked about how you have to give the whole, the whole of the task trust. over trust. And this is what we do now, Guy and I, and it is completely game-changing. So Guy, for example, is responsible for the girls' shoes. I do not know what shoe size my children are. I promise you that's true. I that's do not amazing. know. Because he he has that card in, in the flair play world. He ha- he owns that. So he is responsible for looking at what shoes they need, when they're growing out of them. Do they need repairing? Do they need throwing away? He does all of it. I don't I don't do any of it. Equally the things that I hold, I do all of it. And that is that is how I've actually started to free up some headspace so that I am not holding the entire three people's lives because a lot of mothers I speak to are also and then hating your husband that. for it so they're fucking hating him of course hating him hating so him because he because he on a Saturday <laughs> afternoon is you know sat there watching the football completely oblivious to the fact yeah. that you know you've got 25 things that have to get done and it's not that you can't do them it's not that you can go I'm just not gonna help the kids with their homework or I'm just not gonna take them to that party or I'm just not gonna make sure that the clothes are folded and tidied around and because I think because of, you know, generational and conditioning, we tend to just pick it up. And then like you say, that leads to resentments. But this is, I often think about our generation of mothers, and it'd be interesting to get your thoughts, Julia, almost as an experiment generation, like a guinea pig generation, because more of us are working than ever before. Yeah. Which 50% is incredible. of the working population is women. Exactly. Which is incredible. Incredible. And... We're still doing, I think you said 90%. The study I quote is, is the United Nations, which is 70%. We're still doing 70% of the emotional and invisible labor at home. So we've, we've got these structures that are changing in the world of work slowly, and there still needs to be a lot to change there in terms of access to and work for, for mothers and access mm. to affordable childcare. But we are in this position where we are working more than ever before, and we are still running the homes. And so it's no wonder that burnout, parental burnout, particularly burnout in mothers and working mothers is is higher than it's ever been. And it's double the average. So it's Gosh, double so what a non-parent. Yeah, because if you think about that squeeze, 
And and for a lot of mothers that I work with, it's even having the headspace to mm. have the headspace to try and change the things because you're just yeah. on this hamster wheel of, you know, yeah. got to get to work, got to got to get that meeting sorted, got to make sure that I'm there for that shift. I need this. Who needs that? Mm. Drop off, pick up. Every minute of your day is planned to even have an hour to sit down and think, right, how am I going to do this differently? A lot of people don't don't have that. So I, I do feel like we're the skinny pig generation. I really think you you are a guinea pig generation. I think that's a great word to describe it. And I love the idea of this book, Fair Play, which I am definitely going to buy because it actually really damages the couple relationship when it's all logistics and resentment and you haven't found a system of how to share it together that you're both happy with because when you trust the other you're respecting the other so they feel valued and trusted if they're just given the micro bit that you described about okay take this uh, once I've packed it but doing the whole shoes and now that I know that that's my job that kind of that responsibility is is really important to knowing that that is my job and you can it's a way of loving you know parenting some a lot of parenting is loving in action and doing it with the shoes is is loving in action. And so I think that's incredibly powerful. I'm sure your stats more accurate, by the way, 70 than I think I probably made up 90 from my own experience, 95 from my own experience. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it amazing how quickly you can get there? So before we had kids, Guy, my husband, did all the laundry. And then because I had a year outside paid work, when yes, I first, it was the hard, it was the hardest year of my life, by the way, and the most I've ever worked. I just didn't get paid for it. No. With with um, Jesse, I started to pick up all that domestic load just because I was at home, and it's amazing that trickle, trickle, trickle effect of how suddenly I was like, oh my gosh, I am doing all the domestic work. How did that happen? And I just did it voluntarily. It was my choice. I did it. Yeah. This is down to me. Yeah. Yeah. But it's so easy. It's so easy for that time, particularly as our conditioning kicks in, right? You know, I saw my mum do all the all the domestic work at home. So that that conditioning just just felt like, you know, easy. It's unconscious. Like, oh, okay. That's the pattern we saw. Very so that's the pattern we do. Mm. Very unconscious. And it took for you know, it was a couple of years into the podcast where I was like, hang on a minute, what is happening here? I can't be, ta- I can't be talking about, you know, empowered motherhood and really leaning into the idea that we have to create space for ourselves as mothers in order to be the parent we want to be. When I am holding all of this, and it's not just the, the physical labor, it's all the emotional labor the as emotional well, labor. you know, yeah. which is huge. And huge. I still think that is the typical in a heterosexual relationship that is the typical breakdown is that we still have this I deal with the emotional meltdowns and that takes a huge toll on our nervous systems as I was just talking to you know with my own experience particularly if Mm. that's hard work for me Mm. so yeah there's inequalities everywhere that you you look at it and it's and the more that I scratch the surface of it it's just absolutely fascinating and and it's everywhere and we can't talk about equality and we can't talk about female empowerment without talking about motherhood yeah it's fascinating to me that that is that is not more you know prominent yeah because actually we look at the gender pay gap the, the the pay gap is actually between it's with working mothers it's the motherhood penalty the pay gap between non-mothers and men is actually quite negligible. It's quite small. The real gap comes in with the motherhood penalty. And what the research also shows is that where you are in your career trajectory when you become a mother will predict your earnings when you go back to work. So there's this sort of incredible tension between needing to get as high as you can on your career trajectory and the sort of thing of, of fertility, of have, being fertile. Because if you step off when you're kind of low down, it's much, much harder to go back in after your children and do well because you're probably working part-time or, as you say, you have so much load that you're carrying, it's hard to kind of push yourself through. Um 
We're coming to the end. So it's so interesting, this. I love learning from you. I love hearing your perspective. It's so, so interesting and so insightful and helpful. And I know everyone listening will have loved it too. Do, do you have a question for me? Oh, I do. I would love to know, Julia, from your vantage point now. 63-year-old grandmother, yes. As a 63-year-old grandmother. <laughs> what would you say to my, to my generation of mothers? Oh, I mean, I, I don't have like a brilliant one-liner, which you're going to go, wow. Um, I wish I did. But I think if we start with knowing yourself and always in knowing yourself, it's knowing yourself in relation to others. When we're aware of how we are in relation to ourselves and how that plays out as a mum, as a partner, as a daughter, as a friend, as an employee, as an employer, I think that's a, a very good place to start. Because from there, then you can get the compassion, you can get the changing habits, you can get the insight, you can get the knowledge. But if you don't know yourself to start with, you're not, you've got, you, you're going nowhere. Mm. Well, you can't, you can't change what you don't know, can you? Exactly. Good point, Zoe. <laughs> you said it better than me. <laughs> Do you want to tell people where they can find you and all those things? Yes. So the podcast is the main place and we do two episodes a week. So on a Monday. It's incredible. Two episodes a week. That is unbelievable. Well, it's it's on a Monday. We do a short clip from an older episode because now we've got five years worth of these just world leading experts. So one thing that Motherkind is known for is just is getting incredible experts on the subject. So I will start to find a subject interesting, like just we as we were talking about with the emotional and invisible labor and then I'll go and find the best people in the world who are writing about that talking about it and bring them on amazing so we take a clip from from a from a previous episode on a Monday and on a Thursday we do a full hour-long interview so if you just search Motherkind podcast wherever you get your podcast you will find it and then my website is motherkind.co and I'm zoe.blasky on Instagram where we have a really engaged community and we answer community questions so yeah come and find me Brilliant. And that really is relational, isn't it? So as you're learning in yourself, you're kind of sharing it and building your community and growing and expanding. And, and as you do that, your community grows and expands. That's a lovely cycle. Yeah, it's Beautiful definitely work. not me. It's, it's not me sat on top of a mountain saying I've got this sorted. It's me trying to scrabble up the mountain with everyone else, just chosen to have made this my work. So I, I do the research, the reading, the assimilation, and then I try to share it with my Amazing. audience in a really Amazing. quick, accessible, easier way. Fantastic. Zoe, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, you're, thank you for having me. It's been, it's been a joy as ever. I forget that I'm recording a podcast with you, Julia, because it feels, it feels like a therapy session. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think this is a therapy session where you were teaching the therapist. Which is, happens too. I mean, I think it certainly as a therapist, I learn so much from my clients. Of course, um, yeah. 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 So thank you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. We're going to talk about Zoe Blasky and Motherkind. And as I was listening to her, I thought, Emily is going to have a lot to say about this. <laughs> so shall we? It was a wonderful conversation. Actually, I learned masses from, but tell me what, what was your response to it, Emily? 
Well, like you said, I think it was such a fantastic conversation. I think the bit that you were referring to was the um, where she references the Eve Rodsky book called Fair Play, where she sort of talks about mental load of motherhood and all these unnamed tasks, never-ending tasks that you have in your mind and that you're basically holding and delegating out. And that is 100% an area where me and my husband have quite a lot of tension. And Can we right, just take I, the quite out of it? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely like our recurring fight. I think all couples have a recurring fight. And our recurring fight is I feel like I have to think of everything and just ask you to do stuff and I don't want to ask you to do stuff I want you to think of it and his response is I don't want you to tell me to do stuff which also is really legitimate you know like she said it's very very undermining to be the delegator and the sort of receiver anyway so Eve Rodsky who wrote the book it turns out she has actually made cards that you can buy that have every possible chore thing that you have to think about under the sun. And you can do an exercise with your partner where you go through the deck and you allocate which cards each of you have. And I bought the cards. <laughs> so brilliant. <laughs> of course. <laughs> immediately, immediately. You bought, bought the, the book, cards. you bought yeah. the cards, you I bought, bought all the things. Yes. And what was interesting is that my husband, who I thought might be a bit sniffy about the whole thing, uh, was actually very pro. He was like, oh, this sounds great. I think because he's sort of fed up of me saying the same thing over and over again. Nagging. And... You're nagging. <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs> <laughs> nagging because he'll do it. So we bought the cards and then we went through them last night. <laughs> and I did. We did. Timing. Yeah, we did. Very good timing. They arrived like on Monday. We did it last night. And... What was so um, interesting about it was some of it was really simple. So like a card like laundry, that was like an easy card. Like one of us could just take the card and do it. But then we'd get to other cards and he'd be like, but that's not a thing. Like, that's not a card. No one has to think of that. Like, why is that a card? And I'd be like, no. <laughs> that is so, like we got to a card that said weekend planning. He said, that's not a card. Like no one has to do that. And I was like, well, no one has to do it. But if no one did it, we would never do anything. So, like, that, <laughs> I get what you're saying. It's not a chore. It's not like doing mm. the laundry. But it mm. is still something that is taking up mental space in my brain because I'm thinking, oh, this coming weekend, what are we doing? <laughs> Shall we mm. have dinner with so-and-so? And it doesn't take up space in your brain because you don't do it. <laughs> like you don't think of it and so we definitely had moments of tension just doing the cards because <laughs> he was sort of saying that's not a thing did you did you end up with did you aim for an even number of cards we didn't aim for an even number of cards but I think we ended up probably with a roughly even number of cards but also some of the cards are things that are much more repetitive and time-consuming like doing the dishes or whatever that happens a lot whereas another card might be like buying presents which is definitely a task but it's not one that you're probably doing every day so I think it's probably less about number and more about like how much do you have to think about and do this mm. thing anyway it, what was interesting about it was the exact reason that I bought the cards was also the exact reason that we argued about the cards. <laughs> but what I love about the cards, and I'd be fascinated and maybe we'll have to do an extra reflection to see if it's worked, <laughs> is, you know, the way she talked about the shoes. That sounded, like, utterly brilliant. Yes. That he, he does the shoes. I don't know what size they are. I don't know anything about shoes. He's on shoes. And the relief and the kind of release from that is... And that he then has agency, like it's his job. He's not being patronised or ticked off or bullied. He does shoes. It's yeah, so I, straightforward. And also in my family, Jake does shoes. So I'm like, oh, it's, it's really I great. I have no so. idea what shoe size I have. Because <laughs> Jake was like, I want them to all have barefoot shoes. And I was like, fine, but then you were doing all the shoes. It's your job. <laughs> it also made me think about how, for me, as someone who is not very good at upsetting the status quo and is quite conflict avoidant and likes to keep the peace. 
that it's really quite hard. What's really helpful? Um, that those what's quite helpful about something like those cards is it's a kind of neutral thing in between the middle of you to have the conversation about these tasks because it's the sort of thing that if it's controversial, someone like me would find hard to push or to raise or to battle on that I can be the sort of person that goes, oh, I'll just do it. It's, it's easier that way. Or harder to even just have the conversation because you know you're going to disagree. So I think there's something nice about the cards that it can become a, it's a joint exercise, right? It's not the nag or it's not the fight. Even if you have a fight while doing it. Some people might not have the fight. <laughs> but it's a more fight. neutral entry point, right? Into what is a difficult conversation is my point. Yes. Like but knows. also what it shows is that sometimes whatever you do, you end up back in the same place. And, yes. and that you won't always agree. And you won't always agree. And that's okay. And it's kind of how you navigate around that. Because I think that, like I said, I think most couples have some sort of recurring fight that is to do with the sort of fundamental dynamics of their relationship. And no couple has everything completely perfect. So I also think it's just about knowing what your recurring fight is and be like, here we are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and yeah. really, is this about you know, me doing weekend planning and you not doing weekend planning? Or is it really about him feeling like... Power. Yeah, it's about sort of power and him feeling like I don't think he does enough and therefore, like, he's lazy in some way. That that's the and sort feeling of Feeling criticised or whatever. Criticised and also just not feeling mm. good about himself and me mm. feeling like I have to be in charge of everything and that is too much and mm -hmm. it's really about that more than the like specifics of me inviting people for dinner on a Saturday. <laughs> Often everything gets played out with the physical responsibility but actually what Zoe says very clearly and in a way um, you've just described is the far greater challenge of all parenting for mothers and fathers is the emotional aid, is the what happens to us internally whether it ignites our own kind of injuries from being a, a child all of the different things it's the emotional load that she kind of leans into and is learning from that seems to me incredibly important and powerful I thought that bit about fathers and mothers was so interesting and I was listening to a conversation with Esther Perel the other day and she was talking about men and masculinity and how there's this one of the crises of masculinity is that there's been huge changes for women and women empowerment and now men are in a phase of trying to adapt around that and not knowing, you know, when you're having those fights, some of the, and we've had them in our relationship for sure, of like, who's right here? <laughs> what is fair? The, the lines have changed from when our parents were doing it. And what do we really think how it's supposed to be? And it's, it's been a lot of change, right, for the role of women and men in terms of emotional load, in terms of the practical load. Women working. I mean, but that just shouldn't be a new thing. Women have been working since, like, the war. Not really. <laughs> Not to the scale it is now. Not the scale, but also there's the phase of women changing and then there's the phase of men adapting to all the changes, right, which doesn't all happen simultaneously. So it's like men feeling really quite confused with hashtag me too, with, like, what is the right way to be as a man, as a father? And there's not maybe fewer spaces that are having those conversations, I don't know, for men as there are for women. I think that's right, that it's not so clear-cut and mm -hmm. that is basically overall a good thing in that things are more equal and people have more choices, but also a confusing thing. I, I did think it was quite funny when she was talking about how she wrote her mother a letter and I thought, oh, we didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I love well, the letter writing. So let's just do it now. Thanks, Mum. Thanks, Mum. I did. <laughs> Pleasure. <laughs> I hate Make light you, of it. by the way. I hate you a lot right this second. Bloody hate you. I did think more authentically, I've often felt very grateful for you and Dad doing a lot of emotional labour in your lifetime, which is... A lot of therapy. A lot of therapy. Yeah. And during our lifetime, you've changed a lot in our lifetime. And listening to Zoe, it also made me think that motherhood is such a catalyst and it shows all these parts of yourself, like both the power and the sort of lightness, but also the darkness. 
And mm. for me, the moments that I have been like my worst, like my most horrible, shouty, scary person have been as a mother, like screaming oh, at my, my son God. in the middle of the night. And like, mm. even just saying that, I'm like, I can't believe I did oh, yeah. that. And I felt so guilty whenever something like that has has happened. And the first thing I've done always is to reach out to like either my sisters or my friends that are mothers and be like, I did this thing. And they have almost unilaterally been like, I've done that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I, me too. Or I've done me worse. Too. I've done way worse. And it, and it, honestly, it is so helpful. It makes me feel so much less alone. Less shame. Less shame, yeah. And I'm so glad that Zoe is doing what she is doing because that, I think, is what she's doing, is, is reducing shame. And also just to sort of all the parents out there that have done things that they're not proud of and maybe feel even really deeply ashamed of. Firstly, you are not alone. And secondly, very importantly, it doesn't mean that you're like messing up your child forever. And Oh, yeah, that's good. Because, I mean, I think... Research has shown, so research by Winnicott, who is sort of old school 50s psychologist and also an Edward Tronick, has shown that if basically you are 30% a really attuned, amazing, getting everything right parent, 30% kind of slightly on autopilot, like, yes, darling, as I'm putting stuff in the dishwasher parent, and 30% really not great, like occasionally screaming at your child in the middle of the night parent, your child will probably grow up to be securely attached and kind of okay. And I just find well, that I a very. Heard that before. I've heard her say that. It's very comforting. It's a very reassuring statistic. It's so comforting. Mm. Good yeah, enough, mother. Right. Good enough. Good enough. Very, mother. very much good enough. Yeah. But also, what I'm saying, I think, echoes the thing that you said, which is one of the powers of group work, powers of conversations in a group, because it is that de-shaming and the yes, me too, and I've done that, and recognizing your story and other people's story, and I just wanted to sort of sing the praises of group works I think it could be so powerful whether it's mothers groups or bereavement groups all those groups I think do just a huge uh a huge help in that kind of de-shaming process yeah I don't think it's societally we recognize the power of groups enough not at all I think we think a lot about individual therapy and we don't think that we are actually wired systemically to be connected to everybody if you have a good experience in a group, it is multiplied by the number of people in the group. I mean, the reverse is also true. But imagine the power of that. If you're in a group with 12 people and you feel empathised with compassion and kind of empowered, that by the force of 12 is a, is a huge thing that one-to-one therapy can't do. Mm-hmm. And you also get to give back to other people, which is hugely empowering. You get to be supportive and you get to care and you get to respond, which really gives you a different role sometimes from always being in the role of the bad one or the victim or the you get to be the helper yes but I also think that say you're a person that can't access a group there's not that many groups out there I mean there's a lot of Al-Anon AA those kind of groups there's less sort of other groups I also think that's kind of the point of these podcasts right like the podcast we're doing the podcast she's doing um like Kate Ferdinand's podcast blended I think they're about building communities and helping people feel less alone. I think that's right. I think that, I mean, I hope that's the power of this podcast by people hearing our conversations, both with the interviewee and ours, that they see themselves and they see ways of supporting themselves and that they recognise they are not by any means the only one who screams at their children two in the morning, but we all do it in our different ways. Even though I feel like my absolute worst self is, has been as a, as a mother, I would also say is when I've been my best self and felt most loved, completed, like full of joy. I think that is both sides. Mm-hmm. Mm. It really is. And I remember you saying to me that you knew you always wanted to be a mother. And then when you were pregnant, you hoped it would be like you dreamed it would be. And it really was what you dreamed it to be. And that better, it's better. It's better than you dreamed it. Better. Yeah. better than that, just to note, that so was not true for me. <laughs> I found it so much harder than I thought it was going to be. Just in case anyone else out there is like, no, I did not live the dream. No, but, but, you, but you hadn't been wanting it for years and years and years. Yes, so it like, there was story. like a yearning, a, a yearning. The hole was filled and it just, yeah, it filled it. Filled it. Mm. That's an amazing thing. 
But I guess the connecting between all of you is that we can't make assumptions and you can dream of what something is going to be like. And then when it isn't what you want it to be, you have to find a way of living with what it is like and supporting yourself, given it is like this, rather than beating yourself that it should be like that. So on that note, I feel like saying I love you very much, but that's probably not very potty. Um, <laughs> um, I do love you very much. And everyone listening, thank you for joining us. And Zoe, thank you so much for an incredible conversation that was really inspiring and informative. And it's the power to you for doing the work that you're doing in the realms of parenting and motherhood. And all of you listening, do share and subscribe, help other people find us. And we'll join you again on the next episode. Let me tell you about a podcast I love. And honestly, I wish I'd been around when my children were younger. The Motherkind podcast explores how to feel happier, more confident and empowered in your motherhood, even in this world of pressure, judgment and comparison. Host Zoe Blasky is the UK's leading motherhood coach, and I love her kind, wise and empathetic approach to the challenges mothers face today. Every week she speaks to an incredible expert such as Gabor Mate, Dr Julie Smith and me to share actionable steps and powerful lessons to living your life as a mother with more joy and unapologetic confidence. Listen wherever you get your podcast, just search Mother Kind.